Hi, welcome to this At the Table. I'm Bishop Sue, and I am excited you're here tonight as we continue uh, looking at our uh, Lenten lectionary texts in conjunction with the Covenant Prayer in the Wesleyan tradition. And uh, I have really loved having guest preachers. And uh, today our guest preacher is the Reverend Blake Trent. He is the lead pastor at Dallas First UMC, the pride of Dallas. And um, his sermon's on Numbers 21, 4 through 9, and it's called A Mirror of Bronze. Welcome, Blake. So glad to see you. Um, you know, it just fl floors me that a year ago, we were coming back from the Wesley Study Tour of England. And yep. that was the last time, I don't know about you, but that's the last time I flew. COVID was on the horizon and we took some precautions in the airport, I remember, but had no idea what, what we were heading for. I'm really glad we had, it was a great trip and with great folks. And we learned a lot about John Wesley and traveled all over England looking at um, critical places to our heritage. We were talking well, about that the other day about the Wesleyan heritage trip that we went on and I remember my wife saying when we talked one time when we were in England, she said, y'all be careful. And if you need to pick up a mask. And I remember saying, ah, this is not going to be that big a deal. And yeah. Yeah. It's wrong. a passing thing. Yeah. Well, I still remember, you know, uh, my favorite part of England, regardless of any Wesley heritage is Dishoom, which is an Indian restaurant chain favorite <laughs> place in the world. I mean, when I, in my, when I want to go to a happy place, I go to Dishoom in my head and uh, I still remember, remember we had to go at like four, it was our closing meal together yeah. as a group. We had to go at four o'clock to get in. We finished about six. And I remember walking out and seeing this huge line or, you know, we were in England. So we had a huge queue and I thought, what are, it was like 200 people. What are these people, people were, doing? People were just lined up around exactly. the block. And um, so finally I said, let's figure this out. So went over and asked the folks what they were waiting for. They were waiting to get into Dishoom. And that is my last image of pre-COVID world, especially in England, especially in London, mm -hmm. um, yeah. that this line of 200 people waiting to get into a packed restaurant that we had just eaten at. And boy, that, it's hard to believe how much they've been hit. But I still get emails from Dishoom and they had a great takeout, you know, thing. <laughs> I but thought anyhow, you were going to say it was that weird... Uh play that we went to see about Henry VIII's wife. Oh, six. Yeah. About yeah, the yeah, six yeah. wives of Henry VIII. Yeah. That barely, you know, that's the one that got hit on the Broadway closure because that, I think it had opened a week on Broadway and closed, yeah, but uh, I'm going to use this opportunity though. Uh, one of my favorite things to do has been to travel with the ordinance to England and to uh, the land of Jesus uh, all over Israel and uh, Bethlehem, Palestine, um, and we are going, Blake, save your pennies. We are going uh, next year uh, in February. Hopefully we have a huge class of ordinance this year and I'd, lo I'd love to have a big group. And so this is the plug. And if you're a layperson, we always take lay people too. So if you're up for uh, Holy Land, Sites of Jesus, I really, I mean, golly, scripture comes alive when you see that and learn about that. And um, and it really is a time of bonding and of, of really spiritual awakening. And so if you're up for that trip, that's next February. And uh, the, all of the information will be coming out soon. And so here's the big plug. Uh, if you would like to contribute to our ordinance uh, going, what a great thing to do. I, if you're 
if you're part of a church that has an ordinand, by all means, raise money in the church so that they can go. If you want the preaching better, uh, make them go because they'll give you insight after being over there that they never had before. And if you just like to give in general to the ordinands, I think this is something that North Georgia should fund because uh, I know until I traveled over there, I really didn't get a lot of Jesus. Uh, one of my favorite things we do, we hike uh, down to Jericho through the territory mm -hmm. where the Good Samaritan traveled. And you see how dangerous it's still. Lots of nooks and crannies, lots, lots of areas where uh, anybody could hide and, and attack you. So uh, by all means, uh, anytime you can travel, whether to England for our Methodist heritage or to Holy Land or to Travels of Paul, uh, do it. It will really expand your horizon. And um, I'll, I'll mention some more stuff about that uh, when we come back after the sermon. But I want you to, to enjoy. Uh, Blake is a great preacher and another one of our, I mean, we have an embarrassment of riches in North Georgia. And so let's listen to his sermon. Uh, it's called A Mirror of Bronze. And Blake and I will be back after the sermon to just have some further conversation and get some insight and see where the Holy Spirit takes us. So enjoy. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm Reverend Blake Trent, the minister here at Dallas First UMC, and I'm so grateful to get to share with you in this sermon series, So Be It. Uh, this week, our sermon text comes from the Old Testament, and we're going to be reading from Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. So hear now the word of the Lord. From Mount Har, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. And then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. This is the word of God for all people. So thanks be to God. Amen. So friends, we see here the formation of one of the very first Back to Egypt committees. Uh, as United Methodists, we have uh, familiarity with committees, but I'll bet you won't find this one anywhere in the Book of Discipline. The Back to Egypt committees are always focused on finding a way to go back to something that's familiar, something that's comfortable, whether it's going back to a different Sunday school curriculum or going back to a different time of worship. Sometimes uh, when things are really tense, folks might want to go back to a different pastor. That's sort of the sentiment that was at work here in Numbers 21. Uh, the people of Israel uh, are wandering in the desert and they seem to be overcome with nostalgia because of the struggles of their current situation. You know, nostalgia is a powerful thing. And if you've ever experienced it, you know that. Nostalgia is this sentiment that tells us that things will never be as good as they once were. That uh, the solutions to our present are found in our past. 
And that's what the Israelites believed at this point in their journey. They cried out to Moses saying, you brought us out into the wilderness to die. There's no food. There's no water, which was a familiar complaint in the post Exodus stories. In fact, if you read to some of the uh, read through some of the sections of Exodus, you'll find similar complaints. But what I love is they say there's no food. There's no water. You brought us out here to die. And then their very next line is, by the way, we hate this detestable food. It's a little bit of a contradiction, but that's often what nostalgia does to us. It causes us to contradict ourselves. You know, and upon hearing this complaint from the Israelites, God responds. And he responds by sending poisonous serpents into their camp. I know, just when you thought this was going to be one of those boring stories about a group of people complaining to their leader, it shifts all of a sudden. Have you ever thought about what that must have been like when God sent serpents into the Israelites' camp? I tried to imagine what that must have been like for the Israelites in Numbers 21. What it must have been like for the serpents to come pouring into their camp. And I kept coming back to that video a few years back of Blue Planet that had the marine iguana walking through that outcropping of rocks. And then all of a sudden... All of these snakes just start coming out of all of the cracks and crevices and the iguanas running for its life, dipping and dodging. Maybe that's what it was like for the Israelites. Or maybe I just have an overactive imagination. But it's easy to get wrapped up in the physical side of this story in Numbers 21 and perhaps miss the symbolism that's lurking just beneath it. You see, in the Bible and in the ancient world, people saw serpents not just as poisonous creatures that could harm you, but uh, as symbolic of deceit, uh, symbolic of evil and trickery. After all, that's how the Bible begins. In Genesis, we find Adam and Eve, and the serpent is telling them, just eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you will be an equal with God. We all know how that turned out. And so I wonder what deceptions are at work here for the Israelites. What are the falsehoods that they are tempted to embrace here in the book of Numbers? Well, we've sort of hit on it already. Nostalgia in and of itself is a falsehood. Nostalgia masquerades as a cure-all, but really it's snake oil. Nostalgia tells us that things were perfect way back when and that everything can be improved by us going backwards. I know this to be true myself. In fact, a few weeks ago, I was reminded of this when my mother came to visit us at our home. Uh, she came and she brought a gift like most mothers do whenever they come to visit their children. And she brought a photo album that she found in one of the closets that she cleaned out during the early days of lockdown. And it had all of these pictures in it of uh, myself and my father. My father passed away when I was in middle school. And so in those early years after his death, we did a good job of cataloging photos and memorabilia uh, to remember him by. But apparently this one got misshelved and ended up in a closet. But as we were scrolling through these pictures in the photo album, uh, of course, the comments were similar to what you would hear at anybody who's looking through old photos. Oh, look how blonde your hair was when you were a baby. Or uh, you look so much alike now that you're grown. But somewhere in the midst of those comments, it was highlighted that there were a few pictures when my father didn't look all that happy. Uh, and the response came, yeah, well, he was probably hung over then. Apparently, my father had some real struggles early in my childhood of trying to make the transition from being a single adult to being a responsible father. And that was one of the ways he found to cope. 
It's a painful part of the memory, but it's important and can't be overlooked. Truth-telling is essential to knowing not just our story, but our families and our communities. And if we don't fully understand the story, then sometimes we begin co-signing on behaviors or practices or narratives that we never intended to support. I wonder if there's a memory like that for you, a memory that's been sanitized by nostalgia. Maybe it's a family memory that in your head looks like one of those Norman Rockwell paintings. You know, the ones where everyone looks happy and at peace. Those memories seem to be blotted out with nostalgia. They gloss over that one cousin who just can't get it together, who constantly gets into trouble and won't stop taking advantage of her parents. Or they they seem to blot out that one uncle who's always really ugly about politics around the dining room table, who has a way of alienating somebody every time the family gets together. Now, those are small in scale, but it's not hard to imagine the jump that takes place from that to we were better off when we were slaves in Egypt. And what's so powerful about this passage is that after the Israelites are set upon by venomous snakes, they repent and they ask Moses to go to God and to ask for healing on their behalf. And Moses does. And here's how God responds. If the people want to be healed, here's what we must do. Moses, build a giant snake for them to look at. What? Have you ever thought about how traumatizing and darkly humorous that is? The cure for the issue with the snakes is to build a bigger snake and to make folks stare at it. This is what God tells Moses to do. And this is how the people can be saved. You know, I talked to a colleague, a friend of mine about this a couple of weeks ago because it's such an obscure part of today's passage. And he said, you know, actually, there's a lot of truth here. And I said, do tell. And he said, you know, at some point we all have to look at the thing that's harming us. At some point, we all have to look at the thing that's killing us if we ever hope to grow and to find a better future. That is what it seems God is up to here. God, through the bronze serpent, offers the Israelites a mirror to look into. The serpent of bronze is a reminder that they cannot move forward as a nation and as a people, that they cannot embrace the future that awaits them if they do not let go of the harmful past. That if they don't let go of Egypt now, they will certainly recreate it whenever they make it into the promised land. And notice that in this text, God does not wipe out all of the serpents like the Israelites ask. God does not take upon himself their free will and just kill all of the snakes that have made nests around their camp. Instead, What God does is offer them an opportunity to be healed of the poison injected into them and into their community. God has not and will not remove temptation from our lives. Yet God does give us the free will and often a mirror to look into to find better behaviors and to turn toward a new future. Maybe that's something we all need to hear these days, especially during this season of Lent especially as more and more folks are getting the vaccine in their arm and slowly we're starting to venture out back toward in-person worship and other things. Maybe we too need a mirror to look inward, both as individuals and as the church, a mirror that will show us uh, maybe the lies that we have kept perpetuating that have kept us from a better future. 
Because one thing I know to be true in this moment in which we stand is that nostalgia is slithering all over the place. And the temptation to go back to normal is higher now than ever. But I wonder, friends, is that really what God wants for us? You know, Dallas First UMC, like many of the United Methodist churches in North Georgia, has spent Lent with a special focus on John Wesley's covenant prayer. Uh, And this week, as I read through and prayed John Wesley's prayer, I kept coming back to one line over and over again. It's the line that says this, let me be full, let me be empty. Surely Wesley knew that one of these was more appealing than the other one. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that there is something important to being empty, that there's value in being empty, especially when it means we unload some unhealthy behaviors or practices, especially when it means when we let go of the unhelpful trappings of our past so that we can be filled with something better from God. Isn't that actually one of the ways that we begin this season of Lent? By reminding ourselves that Jesus went out into the desert for 40 days to empty himself, to fast and be tempted in every way. And then he began his ministry. And so for the next few days, I'm going to be praying those words from John Wesley. God, let me be full. Let me be empty so that I can remind myself that I need to be emptied, that I need to be emptied of my nostalgia, of my selfishness and my sin so that I could see the fullness of my story and the fullness of our story together, so that I can be reminded of the love, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, who was lifted up on our behalf and who can point us to a better present as well as a better future. I'll always feel a little bit of sadness when I think about the struggles that my father faced in his life. I'll also feel sadness knowing that he died way too young. But I'm also incredibly grateful to know the fullness of his story, to know that he had gifts and graces and struggles personally, just like any other human being. And that, I believe, has made me a better person and hopefully a better pastor. And the same can be true for us as communities of faith if we really look at our history. You know, about a month ago, the leaders here at Dallas first decided uh, to put together their own committee. I know what you're thinking. Not that kind. In fact, the committee was called the Church After COVID Committee, which I'm going to start secretly referring to as the Don't Go Back to Egypt Committee. And this team of folks came together to discuss what it would look like to return to in-person worship and ministry in newer and better ways. And in their discussions, there was lots of truth-telling People looked at the past from a variety of lenses. They talked about things that they needed to step away from, uh, ministries they needed to let go of. And in the process, also, they talked about some of the ministries that were waiting for them. They hopefully imagined what might be the next chapter of their church's life. And that was a practice of both being emptied and of being filled. Emptied of the things that once worked but have now grown stagnant and filled with excitement and hope for what the future might hold for their great church. And so friends, in this season of Lent, that's what I leave you with. I pray that in the weeks ahead that you will ask God to do the same thing for you. 
that you and your communities uh, will be emptied of the pasts that are no longer helpful, that you will acknowledge uh, the behaviors and practices that have kept you uh, in the dark and kept you trapped, that you will look for the things that have been damaging both inwardly and outwardly so that you might find healing and that you might be filled with hope for a better future by the Lord our God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, Blake, let's talk about the um, the snakes. I mean, what a creepy passage. This one is always, you know, this is another good one, like the ark story, you knowing the ark mm-hmm. for children, you know? Yeah, all these people dying, being bitten. It's just a bad way to go. My um, wife but, said that I should have named the sermon Snakes on the Desert Plain. Exactly. But that's I just a, couldn't find the Samuel L. Jackson. Well, like, yeah. yeah, and you went with the, um, you went with the Blue Heaven uh, no, the blue planet, uh, yeah, imagery yeah. with the, with the, uh, lizard. But, you know, I always go to when snakes come up, I go to snakes on a plane or, <laughs> or Raiders of the Lost Ark when they drop wow. in there. That is the, the gross. I mean, I like snakes one at a time that aren't venomous, but that whole, ugh, ugh, and, it, and they're coming out of, remember how they come out of the nooks and crannies? Oh yeah. Oh, and there's another one. Have you seen the, uh, the video of the, um, it's like just an old wooden house that they're moving and the bulldozer lifts it up. I'll send it to you if I can find it. It is gross. And it is, I've never seen so many snakes in my life. Oh my like it, it, all poisonous, all <sighs> like thousands of them. Alan can't even watch it, but um, yeah, the snake, but I think that's what a good sermon does. And that's what a good text does. It immerses you in how, what was, what was this looking like? And, mm-hmm. and I love how you pointed out, that uh, God sicked the snakes on him for complaining, which, I, you know, as a pastor, I always kind of enjoyed that, you know, yeah. in a really, you know, if, not that I want a- anybody to be uh, dead, die, but, but a few bites I could, you know, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, everyone's experienced some form of back to Egypt committee, whether it's, right. you know, the sermon you preached or the, you know, whatever. Uh, they usually meet in the parking lot, right? Yeah, exactly. After the, that's yeah, after the real is. committee meeting, but yeah. That might be one of the things that's been uh, helped with COVID. There have been a lot, a lot of parking lot meetings after. Or the, there's no place to go because the meeting's held in the parking lot, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but I do think that uh, the complaining is what elicits it. You know, there's a direct correlation there. And um And it's always in the midst of some sort of difficult challenge, some moment of growth where everyone seems to just snap and somehow blame God (laughs) or blame poor Moses. On the podcast this week, I talked about the reptilian brain, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of where I went with the sermon. I mean, you know, um, the reptilian brain is the complaining Mm -hmm. and the... um, the just, uh, I'm going to, yeah, I'm just going to tell you a personal thing that I hate what's going around now that I really like them because they don't have a filter. You know, I think the filters are a very Christ-like thing. I think (laughs) I have no admiration for anybody who doesn't have a filter because I think filters are of God. Right. And so, and so the reptilian brain, uh, is your fight or flight. It's your initial reaction. And it's always, um, it's always 
with no filter, right? You, mm-hmm. A reptile cornered, a snake cornered in a corner has one reaction and it's going to bite and it's going to be ugly. And so I think that um, God punishes the reptilian brain in this story with reptiles. And I think the good word that you just use is reaction. It's, it's so reactive. Right. We've all, we all have been in that situation where uh, whatever the anxiety or the stress was, the immediate thing is we need to react to this right now. Right. Which rarely ever has gotten me a good response or well, a good and, result. And we, and we all do it. And, and it yeah. feeds itself. I mean, I've got to tell my Bob Murray story. I had a saint of a lay person and I talk about him all the time. But Bob, Bob came up to me one day and it was a time of conflict in the church. Why? Because we were changing some stuff and the old guard was really mad. And Bob came up and said, yeah, one of them came up to me and just went off on you. And he said, I say what I always say. I said, what do you always say, Bob? Because I want to take careful note because when saints speak, you probably should listen. I said, what did Mm -hmm. you say? He said, you know, I've never heard her say an unkind word about you. And he said, I say that all the time. He said, now, sometimes it's not true. (laughs) But, (laughs) But he said, um, it ends the conversation. Mm-hmm. It turns it, it turns it back to how it needs to be, you know? So I think that, um, that, yeah, these folks just went off mm-hmm. and, and we all do, mm-hmm. and we all lose our filters and we all, um, and sometimes, uh, looking back on it, we're like, I didn't really mean that. Or I, I didn't really, I just went there without thinking or filtering. And so, uh, but I, but a lot of times it's triggered by change and nostalgia as it was in this church where Bob had to talk to one of these folks. And that was the, that was the funny thing is, you know, I think the two things that stuck out to me is one, it's just a, it seems like a really dark, humorous story of how we will cure them is give them a giant snake to look at. But also, you know, we are, have no food, we have no water, we detest this horrible food. Exactly. So the immediate, you know, the first line of your paragraph is, you know, contradicting yourself. Well, and that's it. You know, how many times yeah. as a kid did you say, I'm hungry, I'm starving, I've got to have something to eat, and your mother gives you something like peas or vegetables or, you know, an mm-hmm. apple. You're yeah. like, I'm, I'm, no, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, we have nothing to eat. Yeah. And, and the same, and yeah, I think the other thing is somewhere in there, they probably realized, yeah, we contradicted ourselves because we have manna. And then they also probably said the same thing of, yeah. it wasn't better in Egypt. It was not, well, you know. And yeah. I don't know about you, but I'd like to think if, if God was like giving me food directly, Folly. I mean, don't you think that would be a little reassuring, uh, you yeah. know, but they're still not happy. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Moses, I tell you, uh, he was a great old Testament figure because there are many, t- you know, I love it how he goes to bat for him when God wants to smite him and, and Moses is like, mm-hmm. no, and I'm like, God, I don't think I was that good a pastor because there are many times I'd be like, God, go right ahead. <laughs> they want me to tell you to save them, but I trust you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's talk about the danger of nostalgia because it is so prevalent. And I think hard times make it. And you talked about it and I loved your story about your dad. The problem with nostalgia is we rewrite history, right? Yeah, yeah. This uh, revisionist history, totally. Yeah. Revisionist. I was listening to, uh, I was, or I was watching uh, this thing on Netflix called Amend. 
It's about the amendments to the Constitution. Mm. And one of the things that they highlight is uh, Abraham Lincoln originally was okay with keeping the South and the North together with slavery. And that really, it was Frederick Douglass and a handful of really powerful, you know, abolitionists who were saying, no, 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 no. And yeah. one of uh, Frederick Douglass's responses was I actually wrote down the quote this morning. It says, we're not fighting for the old union, nor for anything like it, but for one that is 10,000 times more important. Yeah. Uh, and I, I never heard that growing up. Right. Right. Yeah, it was always Lincoln was the hero, which in some ways his mind is changed and he does come mm -hmm. around. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's amazing how quickly we retell our stories. Well, and I, you know, it made me think back to churches in the past and the revisionist history, the nostalgia. Uh, one church uh, in Cape Coral, Florida, every Easter, we'd have big crowds. I mean, mind you, we filled up the church, but they, they all remembered we used to have to put out chairs. And I would hear that, you know, the old timers, we always had to put out chairs and somehow the church had declined and we were on the, you know, on the road to perdition because we weren't putting out chairs. And finally, I just sat down objectively and thought about that and thought about the years where they put out chairs. And, and finally, I, I had my response and I would say, okay, how many Methodist churches were around here at the time you're talking about? And they'd think, and they'd be like, hmm. This was the only one in like a hundred mile radius. Okay. <laughs> How many Methodist churches are there now? Yeah. Hmm, 10, 12. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about um, what there are your chairs. What are, let's talk about what our neighborhood looks like now. Yeah. Um, how many white retirees live around this church now in Cape Coral? And, you know, I'd remind them that the average age had gone down to about 37 okay. and that, you know, there were a few children in the church, which was really what we had to build up when we were there. Um, and that there was a huge Hispanic population that they really didn't count in their whole census. Mm. So, the, you know, the nostalgia, that's why it was dangerous, because they were looking back, first of all, to a time and place that had disappeared. And the goal was to, to have that back. You know, yeah. we could only have white retired people um, in mass come but mm -hmm. you know sadly some of them are going to the 11 other method searches and by the way the you know 100 new non-denominational presbyterian yeah. i mean you had so it, the pioneers are the ones who had the nostalgia for a time and place that would never happen again mm -hmm. and it wasn't realistic and yeah. you know another church we served had an 11 o'clock uh, Christmas Eve service. And, yeah. you know, every year this was packed. Okay, let's talk about that. Well, yeah. it was in the, you know, the, the early days of tele, televised church. And mm -hmm. that was the big community hour. It was televised at 11. And everybody came to be on TV. I was gonna say they all wanted to get there exactly. 15 minutes of and fame. everything built to that. And they really, I think they had a I think they had a, you know, a seven o'clock service, but everybody went to the 11 o'clock service. When we were there, we had, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, eleven services. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, once again, nostalgia based on a time and place that, um, you know, if we want to have one service and have nobody able to find a seat and make everybody miserable, we'll do that. But yeah, we can do really that. Not, yeah. You know. Yeah. I've heard that a little bit, just in, you know, bits and pieces since I've gotten to Paulding County. 
where, but it was I, I, the one I remember most vividly was, oh, we left Marietta in, you know, 1978, you know, to, it was just too big. And I was like, in 1978, like, that's like 40 years ago also. <laughs> uh, like, you know, no one can escape growth forever. Right, uh, right. But, but yeah, that's, uh, that's what it does. And, yeah, and Alan served a church that really, you know, never grew past. They, they were the pioneers who hated Atlanta and hated the growth of Atlanta. And by God, their church wouldn't grow either. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it was a mindset. And, and C.S. Lewis said uh, flat out that nostalgia is, is dangerous to mm -hmm. our faith. Well, um, and I think one of the things that, you know, was meaningful to me in thinking about that is, you know, one of the things that, you know, you can't create your own nation if you don't see what was wrong with the old one, you know, and right. I, I think it, in many ways, if you read through the Old Testament, they do make some of the same mistakes over and over again. I mean, they want a king so bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. God yeah. tells them they don't need a king, but they just right. can't live without a pharaoh. Um, but, you know, like for I was thinking about this past week, uh, I watched the I think half the world watched, uh, you know, the royals, you know, Meghan and Harry. I was glued. Uh, yeah. Talking about that. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, Harry said that was so poignant was, like I was watching history repeat itself. Yeah. Like I was watching what happened to my mother happening. Right. To my wife. And uh, how uncommon it is for somebody to break out of that yeah. and say, we need to change. Like we need to completely rearrange our lives. That's, that's not common. And, and I think 99% of the time, the Holy Spirit's leading you beyond that. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, yeah. I never have, have yet to see the Holy Spirit say, we're going back. Yeah. <laughs> we're moving back. And I do think a lot of the, a lot of what we're seeing in our country now is a fear of diversity, a fear of people who don't look like me, a fear, gosh, you know, a woman or a person of color might actually be in charge mm. in the church and in our, in our country, yeah. you know? Um, and so there is this huge push to go back uh, somebody said, you know, I can't wait. I wish it was like it was in the fifties and, you know, everybody was like, leave it to beaver and father knows best, which you probably never watched, but all these images of, I know what they are. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and, um, I always, I'm like, you know, for women and people of color, we don't look at the fifties and go, boy, those were great times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, Ooh, I really want to wear pearls and cook all day. Like June Cleaver. That was, that was my goal. So I think that, um, yeah, we, the nostalgia, the uh, desire to have a king, the desire for somebody to make this all right and default anybody who doesn't. I don't know about you, but anytime you work in the transforming church realm, they're looking at you to make it all right mm -hmm. by tomorrow and right is like it used to be, right? Exactly. So, and, and, I, and I think that's one of the things that sort of, you know, spoke to me, too, is that, you know, we, we don't say it enough. And I think it's a weird thing that somehow has developed with evangelical Christianity in the last half century of, you know, I met Jesus and Jesus made my life perfect and comfortable. Yeah. And yet, like, I feel like I want to say the opposite. I'm like, no, like I kind of encountered Jesus. And then, like, I got shaken up like a snow globe <laughs> and things well, were not comfortable. Exactly. But, you know, if you ask anyone, most folks will tell you, like, no, I've never heard somebody say my life was transformed spiritually when everything went my way. And I was very comfortable. Well, it's usually still, the exact opposite. Yeah, I still remember being on the board of ordained ministry and we had a candidate for ministry come through 
who just kept went on and on and on about how he reads scripture for comfort. And, and finally <laughs> I'm like, you know, <laughs> I read, you scripture. I spend an awful lot of time reading scripture and very little of the time is it comforting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Most of the time it is calling me out, calling my, what I presume into question, pushing me to move beyond my own limited constraints. And yeah. I think that, um, you know, um, I love how you started reflecting on the let me be full, let me be empty. Uh, well, one thing, though, I've always thought, loved about, or not really loved, but just God, you know, they, they're still being bitten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. God, just get rid God didn't get rid of the snakes, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. You got to look on the big snake. And God will mm-hmm. save you, but you've got to be obedient. You got to do what God says. You've got to trust God for your deliverance. And, yeah. and, and you're still going to get bit. I mean, there yeah. goes the prosperity gospel, right? Yeah. That, um, God doesn't shield me from um, COVID. Yeah. God doesn't shield me from the unpleasant parts of life. God doesn't shield me from physical and mental illness, but God does, uh, Ask me to look upon Christ um, yeah. and to contemplate what it is to be really empty. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, we talked, I think, before we started recording uh, about, you know, trying to keep these uh, messages somewhat short. You know, they're a little bit more like homilies than full on Methodist sermon, which sometimes mm-hmm. can be too long. But, you know, there was a part of me there that really wanted to talk about the John 3 text, you know, right. Everybody knows John 3, 16, but if you ask most people, John 3, 14 and 15 aren't really something that sticks in your mind, but, you know, Jesus directly points to the scripture and numbers, mm-hmm. you know, about being lifted up. And um, most of the time uh, there's a communication again of you see Jesus on the cross, you're transformed and your life is made better. But, you know, especially during Lent, we get that reminder of whether you've done this a thousand times or, or, you know, this is your first time looking to the cross is supposed to remind you of what Jesus. Out there. Right. And it's, it's me. Yeah. And the, you know, two, two thoughts I had. One is if you go to Mount Dembo, mm-hmm. um, which to me was one of the profound experiences of my life mm-hmm. um, to, to be on the Mount where Moses looked at the promised land, but was never allowed to go in. I mean, to mm-hmm. me, that is just after watching what he dealt with and 40 years in the wilderness with, you know, a stiff neck people. Mm-hmm. Um, and he looks at the promised land and never goes in. And Mount Nebo mm-hmm. was where he dies. And if you go to Mount Nebo, uh, the most, com- really, there's not much there, but there is a huge cross with a snake going up it. Oh, wow. Which is, I'll send you a picture of it if I can find it, but um, or you can just Google it, but um, <laughs> you might put that in your sermon this Sunday, but that's, that's what's on Mount Nebo, a huge cross with the snake going up it. And it really does. It's no, no surprise that the um, lectionary from the gospel is John three this week. And that mm-hmm. Jesus says, you know, right before the biggie, everybody, you're right. Everybody knows John three sixteen for God so loved the world, but right before it, Jesus says, as the serpent was raised up to save the Israelites in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up to save the world. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about that image. You know, um, you think of the big snake on the on the on the rod, and then you think of Jesus on the cross. And to me, 
that is the reminder of what happens to you if you are truly obedient to God, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. the world hates the fruits of the spirit. The world is not, I mean, the world doesn't yeah. take to gentle and kind people very well. The world chews them up and spits them out. You look at the martyrs of the faith. If you're really following Jesus, you know, your life um, will take some hits and mm -hmm. you have to redefine the good life and redefine nostalgia. And it won't, it probably won't resemble anything in your past. No. But I do, I do love that image of what we look upon to save us is a human fully emptied. Mm -hmm. And that is the goal. Yeah. And I think the thing for me that was so, you know, powerful about that is, um, which, you know, we could get into so much about your Christmas Eve service, you know, being full and whatnot. But, you know, for years, one of the things that we've, I've highlighted at every church I've served is, you know, like everyone loves to come and light a candle and sing about a newborn baby. Mm -hmm. uh, but really what the church needs is to be at church for, Mount, for a Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. Right. Those are the things that are really, you know, heart wrenching and, and, you know, that really touch you. And that's usually a much smaller crowd. Yeah. And, because and, you that's know, really was, challenging. In the last place we lived, the non-denominational church in town, I got their flyer in the mail and um, they just did away with those services. So you could mm. go to Easter, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, five services on Sunday. And yeah. I'm like, you've, you've gutted the faith. Mm -hmm. You've gutted the faith because uh, to look, to look at the cross and to look at God as a fully emptied human being is the heart of the faith. And so, and, and, and some of, in some of those churches that we've served, you know, I'm sure it was the same for some of the churches you served in Florida. I, I remember that, you know, you emptied the sanctuary whenever you celebrate Monday Thursday. And so you take down all of the pyramids, all of the right. crosses, you, you put the, the black, altar. Yeah. And you put the down altar. the black shroud on the cross or whatever. I mean, it's, it is, it is gut-wrenching, you yeah. know, so. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I've always loved the imagery that spiritual, the spiritual life is about emptying yourself to be filled by God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, I think this whole story of the snakes is just the story of, um, the human fight and my fight against Me too. being empty. Yeah. You know, I want to fill my, and I think that's the heart of addiction. It's the heart that we want to fill ourselves. And so, mm -hmm. um, so I think Lent is about getting comfortable with the emptiness mm -hmm. and realizing that this isn't the absence of God, but it's the gateway to the presence of God. Yeah. And I'm, as, as we've said, I mean, when you get to Easter and you felt like you've emptied, even if it's the, I've emptied myself of diet Coke for 40 days. Right. And, you know, I always say if, if you, if you can't do that, like, I think that's just as powerful as right. if you keep your, like right. you can go look at this, Jesus died for my sins and didn't sin at all. And I can't get rid of diet Coke for 40 days, which is, that's still a powerful thought. But when you get to Easter and you've gone through those things and through the Monday Thursdays and the good Fridays, there really is a reason to stand up and cheer and, you know, bang a tambourine. Uh, right. That I have, I have powerful. journeyed with Jesus and I've been through the emptiness. Mm -hmm. and now I can fully embrace the power mm -hmm. of the resurrection and that, um, and that nothing can defeat us, you know, uh, defeat us. And I think that um, 
that we're bereft and the church is bereft Yeah. without, you know, the church talks a lot about the cross, doesn't really ponder uh, the heart of the emptying. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, um, there's not a saint or a martyr that wasn't recognized for their emptying of self. Yeah. And they're filling with Christ. And, and so uh, we're all on that journey and it, and it, uh, you know, and like the Israelites, it comes in fits and starts and we fight it. Yeah. And like you say, we need to be aware of where we're fighting it and where we're, um, you know, letting, creating our own reality. I don't know about you, but have you been back to the house that you grew up in? Yep. Mm-hmm. I went back and it was tiny and it yeah. bore no resemblance to any of my childhood memories. So and that, that's can, one of those, that's one of the things that I, I, I assume every adult hit, hits it at some point uh-huh. where like, you know, maybe when you're in college at some point, you're like, Oh, I just wish I could go home. But then in your adult life, at some point you go home and you're like, I can never live here. Like, yeah, 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 this is not what <laughs> this I remember. I can't recreate this. I can't, yeah. you know, I sometimes in bad times, I go through my grandparents' house in my head because mm-hmm. that was a happy place, but it, yeah. it only exists in my head. And yeah. I can't, I could buy that house. I could build a wall around it. I could, but what made it was them and yeah. that time in my life. And I can't recreate that. So instead of living into the nostalgia, maybe I think about, how do I create that for somebody else? What does it mean to have safe people in your life? And how yeah. can the church reflect what I love so much? And so. And, and now, you know, I think the reason that hits so heavy, the nostalgia aspect is because, you know, we're getting our second shots. We're, we're slowly moving toward that traje- trajectory of things can become a bit more normal, whatever right. that is. Um, and, <laughs> I think the the nostalgia is let's just go back to the way everything was when right right I, I don't know that uh, what's the Doctor Phil joke you know like you know how's that working out for you how's it, it working for us well and and who are we serving yeah who yeah. who you know mm-hmm. um, I, I got a letter I I I just really want to be back into worship and you know. Um, we're reaching far more people online but that's just not right <laughs> like well. You know, let's redefine right. That, that's almost like uh, we detest this horrible food. We have no food. We though. have no food, but we detest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I uh, I just finished reading uh, Michael Curry's uh, Bishop Michael Curry's mm-hmm. book, Love Is the Way, and one of the things that I really loved that he talked about was when he was uh, a pastor in Baltimore. He was a priest at a, a large church in Baltimore, and it burned. Mm. And he talked about how he was trying to get folks to change trajectory. Mm-hmm. And the burning of the of the church was actually the thing that is what worked. Yeah, I think. That, yeah, in the in the in this community we just moved from when we came to Georgia, mm-hmm. the Baptist church arsonists had burned it, and it had oh, a beautiful God. downtown facility like the Methodist church did. And mm-hmm. when it burned down, they had to move out of downtown, and they bought multiple acres and mm-hmm. and grew exponentially. Mm-hmm. The Methodist church never did because they weren't yeah. forced to change or to think about how they were doing things or to, you know, and, and so um, there's lessons in that. Yeah. And COVID can be that, you know, it just, it takes looking in the mirror, which is not always easy. Right. Well, thank you, Blake. I appreciate the insight. Sure has helped my Lenten journey. What prayer should you take from this um, as you go about this week? You know, I, I always like to have a prayer in my head 
uh, to carry with me. So I think one of the things that I, I said in the in the sermon that was it's it's hard to pray, but the let me be empty so I can be filled. Um, yeah. And and to see that as uh, not two things that are mutually exclusive, but the, the filling comes from the empty. Um, right. You can't right. do one without the other. And right. we get this wonderful opportunity during Lent to do that. So here's to emptiness mm-hmm. and uh, looking forward to great rejoicing at being filled again at Easter. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's the constant um, spiritual uh, life is to empty, to be filled, to acknowledge that now I'm rejoicing in the fullness and I have to empty again, right? Amen. So um, anyhow, well, thank you. Have a blessed rest of, blessed rest of Lent and a joyous Easter. And may you never go back to pre-COVID days. Amen. Amen. Same to you. At the Table is produced by Sybil Davison and edited by Kim Drobes. Music is by Chuck Bell. Thank you, and I look forward to the next time we are together.